Our message this morning is called Smile, You're on Display. It is uh, May 4th, 2014. I think most of you that know me know that this has been a somewhat tumultuous time. And I take great delight in looking at all of the nastiness from the enemy, all of the vitriol, all of the venom that he can spew my way, and laughing, pronouncing a smile, and going on to worship my God. The devil is a bad devil. He's been lying since the beginning. It's what he does. I choose not to believe it. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. You'll be in the 8th chapter and in the 10th verse. Say there when you were there. All right, are the rest of you on your way? I want to tell you Life Changing Ministries is a little different kind of ministry. It is okay to agree out loud. It is okay to speak in church. It is okay to read your own, but you can double-check all the things that I say. You can go home, study to prove me wrong, and come back and politely challenge it. We are a community of believers that are full of faith and absolutely unafraid to discuss the glories of God because he can stand the debate. Amen? In Nehemiah 8 and the 10th verse, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food. Come on, somebody say choice food. That means don't go eat the nasty stuff you don't want. Don't go eat what somebody's got left over. They're trying to push off on you because nobody in their family wanted. Go eat the choice food. And what kind of drinks? Despite all of our federal government's best attempts to limit your sugar intake, God Almighty said you can drink a sweet drink. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Our God is very, very interested in your attitude. And so on days that he calls sacred, days that are convocations, that are holy, he usually provided something to lighten the mood. He wanted you to find joy in his presence. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Why is the enemy trying to discourage you? Why is he pulling at your life? Why, when you turn on the news, do you see nothing but bad news? Why, when you talk to your relatives and the people around you, is everybody pretty sure that things are going the wrong way? The devil is trying to steal your strength, rob your joy. Can we say that things are going the wrong way? Yes, and I'm happy anyway. You know why? When things go wrong, I don't go with them. In the name of Jesus, I'm going against the grain. I am counterculture. I fell in love with a revolutionary named Jesus, and now when things go wrong, I don't have to go with them. I don't have to obey my flesh's desires. I'm not a slave to my emotions. In the name of Jesus, the word of the living God has set my direction, and now my feet are planted firmly in the will of God. I will tell my, emo- my emotions they must obey the will of God. I will force my flesh to be a slave to my spirit's desires. In the name of Jesus Christ, I am a new man. Oh, saints, you don't have to be defeated. I know the guy that went all the way to hell and back for you. I know the one that crushed death and spit it out like mud in the streets. I know that guy, and his presence is in this room. The word joy appears 218 times in the Bible. Somebody say, that's a lot. lot. And we're going to cover every one of them today. 
I'm kidding. <laughs> Our already long services, can you imagine if we preached on 218 verses? I want to focus on the importance of joy. I want to show you what it has to do with receiving from the hand of God. But before we do that, I want to address another subject that's related to it. Jesus put it on my mind last night. I woke up this morning studying a completely different passage of Scripture, and much to my surprise, the Holy Ghost had hidden a jewel inside that Scripture. I heard a young man preach on Wednesday night about the necessity of seeking out the face of God, gathering something from that secret place and sharing it, and that's what I intend to do today. Isn't it good when you meet your brothers and you benefit from their private labor before God? Oh, man. The 14th chapter of Corinthians says that each one of you should bring something to the church service. A psalm, a hymn, a prophecy, a word of instruction. These things must be done for the strengthening of the body of Christ. Look at your neighbor and say, you have something I need? Next week, bring it. You hear me? Next week, bring it. In the name of Jesus, we're not going to show up in church to listen to some old sage on the stage feed us. Ten points about God that we already agreed on ahead of time. We're going to seek the face of God and we're going to find those treasures hidden in a scripture and then we're going to dance in the presence of God and share them with our neighbors because they may need what you just worked to get. Amen? Amen. Okay, so expectancy. I normally read from the NIV. I love the New King James. I love the New American Standard. I have an electronic copy of the Amplified Bible, and I don't read it very much. But have you ever run into a... How many of you is English not your first language? How about that? When English is not your first language... I can't believe those of you from southern Louisiana didn't raise your hand. <laughs> when English is not your first language... Inflection is everything. Where you place pauses in the sen sentence. Your emphasis can be on the wrong syllables. You following me here? How about this phrase in English? Let's eat grandpa. Where you put that comma makes a really big difference. What's that in the road? Ahead? Is somebody's noggin rolling around in the road, or is there simply something in the road ahead? Are you following me? Anybody's ever had to translate, particularly for this pastor? Come on, Jorge. Jorge had to translate for me in Matamoros, and he kept looking at me like, I don't think I can say what you just said. It, it, it won't work, <laughs> okay? Anybody that's ever had to translate has run into this. Well, the Amplified Bible occasionally provides hints as to the emphasis of the Scripture, something implied in the order of the words, something pregnant in the text that someone who doesn't speak Hebrew may gather. So we're going to show you a verse out of the Amplified in Psalm 85 where expectancy is applied, is implied rather. Psalm 85 and verse 6, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy and loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen with expectancy to what God the Lord will say. The original text doesn't say with expectancy. 
But the way that it's written, it's rhythm and it's meter, what's called in English onomatopoeia, the way that the syllables accelerate as the sentence is coming, convey a sense of expectancy. I will listen with expectancy to what God the Lord will say. When you came into the house of God today, did you have a sense of expectancy? Were you happy with the Lord and showing it, and did you expect something good? The Scripture tells us, I will listen with expectancy to what God the Lord will say, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, those who are in right standing with Him. But let them not turn again to self-confident folly. These words in... um, In this translation that appear in brackets, and some of you may not see them, are words that are implied in the text that a native speaker would gather, but is not stated in a literal definition. Have you ever tried to translate something like, hey dude, that's cool? Translate that literally and we have a real problem. Right? Because we're not talking about something that lacks temperature. We're talking about a colloquialism. We're talking about something that is uh, a cultural euphemism. Well, in the Scripture, these things are implied. Surely His salvation is near to those who reverently and worshipfully fear Him and is ready to be appropriated that the manifest presence of God, His glory, may tabernacle and abide in our land. Tell me, how good is that? When you showed up today, did you expect to find the joy of the Lord here? Did you expect to receive something from Him? Did you expect for Him to visit with you? Or did you just go to another church service? See, sometimes you will get what you expect to get. If you show up in what you expect, it's just to endure an hour or two hours or in this church maybe three and a half hours, then that's all you'll get. But if you show up expecting, urgently yearning for, desiring to meet with God, He may just meet with you. See, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness get filled, not those who simply want to go and sit and soak. Those who are hungering for something. So let me ask you, are you hungry this morning, church? Oh, come on now, are you hungry this morning? See, when you're hungry then this conveys a sense of expectancy. Verse 10, Mercy and loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring up from the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Now every prosperity pimp on the planet, everybody who's become a fisher of funds trying to use this Bible as a means to get themselves rich. They've become enemies of the gospel in doing so. Uses scriptures like this to say, see, if you serve God, God will make you rich. I'm here to tell you if you serve God, you may lose your life. If you serve God, you may get imprisoned. If you serve God, you have to lose your life to find His. If you serve Jesus Christ you will be persecuted. Paul said that to Timothy. It was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. And nevertheless, I choose to serve him. I love him. I'm not in this for what I can get from him. I'm in this for what I can give for him. In a deposition, an attorney recently asked me, on a good month, 
how much does your church bring in? I said, well, ma'am, I guess this is going to be difficult for you. Because the way that we would define a good month is when there's nothing in the account because we've spent all we have for the glory of the gospel. Yes. It's not what she was looking for. <laughs> it's not what she expected. I think she's used to talking to pastors that drive escalades and promise confessions of wealth. But this pastor in this congregation is based on sacrificial love, sacrificial giving, he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what did he do? He died for us. Well, while they're still sinners, I want to go spend my life for them because I'm walking in the footsteps of my Lord. Can somebody say amen? If Jesus Christ set out for the joy set before him and endured the cross, scorning its shame, if he set out because of the joy set before him, can you learn to find joy in difficult circumstances? See, I think we can. I think you can learn to smile right in the midst of difficulties. There is a Hebrew word I want to talk to you about today. Susan, put that one on screen. Can you make it any bigger? Uh, maybe not. Tikva. T-I-K-V-A-H. Tikva. Tikva shows up 34 times in the Older Testament. That's a bunch, isn't it? 34 times? If you said a word 34 times, is it an important word? Tikva, what is underlined up here, says a noun referring to hope and expectation. It refers to an attitude of anticipation with the expectation that something will happen. Let me read to you a couple examples of how it's used, and I promise there's a point here. It's not a linguistics lesson. In Psalm 62, in verse 5, it says, Find rest, O my soul. In God alone, my hope comes from Him. The word hope in Psalm 62, in verse 5, is tikva. My hope comes from Him. Here it is again in Jeremiah 29, in verse 11, a verse that your grandmother probably knitted into a quilt. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you tikva, hope, and a future. Tikva means hope and it means expectancy. But that is not the way it first appears in the Bible. In the Bible, 32 times it's translated hope or expectancy. But the other two times come from the most unique of places. Turn with me to Joshua 2. In Joshua 2, the spies have gone into the promised land. And they've indeed seen that it was a good land. And they meet this woman of questionable character to some. What's her name, church? Rahab. They meet Rahab. It's always an interesting thing when the church meets a Rahab. Some simply walk by on the other side of the street confident that they're better than her. Others can't bear to look at her for fear that they may have inappropriate desires for her. Yet others prefer simply to never be confronted, period, with a Rahab. They hide in their spiritual safety deposit box called the church. But when these spies met Rahab, they engaged her in conversation. 
As one of the elders pointed out to me this morning, why send spies into Jericho? God has already given the battle plan. God has already assured them of victory. Why send spies in? Well, perhaps they were looking for a Rahab or two. Maybe God is willing to infiltrate the system of the world to colonize this world for the kingdom of God. Maybe he's looking for somebody who's been trapped in the wrong flow but is ready to change their direction. Come on, church, somebody who's willing to repent, somebody who's willing to turn around, willing to change. Somebody who says, I've tried it my way all my life and all it's ever gotten me is hell. I need help. And if the Lord of mercy and glory would simply grant me a chance, I would turn around. Oh, that moves the heart of God. Tikva has meant hope and expectancy 32 times in the Scripture. But in Joshua 2 and 21, these spies say to her, Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in her window. How many of you remember this story? Raise your hand if you remember it. Raise your other hand if you remember it. How about this? She knows that judgment is coming upon her city. Anybody feel like judgment might be headed for the USA? She feels like judgment's coming on her city. She knows of the good things God has done, and now she's scared because she can see men that stand for God, and they're standing in her home, and her nation is on the wrong side of things. So they make an agreement. Said, if you hang a scarlet cord in your window, sweetheart, we will remember that you are with us and not with them. And whoever you bring into your house where this scarlet cord is, they'll be saved on that day. You know the story, right? The word translated scarlet cord is tikvah. So how could that be? That cord represented her hope, her expectancy, her hope that salvation could be found for those who were living in a land that was under the judgment of God but had reached out for mercy, Lord. Oh, church, if we could learn to hang hope and expectancy in our window, if we could learn to advertise to the whole world not just a bloody cord but what the bloody cord represents, I have a hope and I have an expectancy that God has got a good future for me. I have a hope and I have an expectancy that the finances of the earth don't determine my future. I have a hope and expectancy that you could knock this righteous man down seven times. But I'll get back up again. Where is your hope? What's hanging in your window? You remember the little signs on cars that said, baby on board? Somebody quickly retorted, nobody on board. They don't know how accurately they were speaking of themselves, do they? Nobody on board. What is hanging in your window? Because the world is watching. Does your life convey a hope? Does your life convey an expectancy? Or are you simply hanging a bloody cord out there? See, in Christ, when we say Christian, we're identifying with a bloody scarlet cord. But we're supposed to be identifying with more than that. We're supposed to offer hope to Rahab. We're supposed to stand out there and say, if you're under judgment and you would like to get out of it, if your heart desires to follow the Lord, come with me, I'll show you how. 
the church is supposed to go into all the nations and not make believers. It's supposed to go into all the nations and make disciples. It's supposed to go into all the earth and baptize people, not just in water, but into the name, the character, the authority, the body of work of Jesus. Jesus didn't come and just give us a message to believe. He came and showed us how to carry out that message. And who was drawn to him? Oh, the Rahabs of the world. Women with whom demons had been cast out of. Fishermen in the dregs of the earth. They were drawn to him because they wanted their lives to change. They saw in him hope and the expectancy of something better. Come on, do you have a reason for joy and hope today? How many of you are pregnant in the house of God today? Oh, my goodness. Just in December alone, we got five babies coming. Boy, isn't that fear mixed with hope? Isn't it? We got a first-time mama in the house. Is there a little bit of fear mixed in that hope? This is where we display trust in our hope. When you're scared because you're not really sure what it's going to require of you, or maybe you are exactly sure of what it's going to require of you, and you're not sure you're up to the task, but you trust that your God will supply what is missing, then you can display hope and expectancy in the midst of your fear. What's hanging in your window, church? I want to hang something from my window that says how good Jesus is. I want to share with you one more idea before we get into our text. Occasionally I lie when I preach. I might share more than one idea. I might share every idea that I have. Are you bored yet? No. Anybody sleeping yet? No. If your neighbor's sleeping, shove them. Say, get up, get up in the house of God. Turn with me to Matthew 28. You ever heard the phrase... We're going to pray until God shows up. We're going to go and worship until God shows up. We're going to go there and meet with God. Look at Matthew 28 and verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey Everything I have commanded you, and surely I am, surely I am, surely I am. Church, is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he Lord? See, he's liar, lunatic, or Lord, and I have believed that he's my Lord, and so far it's been a pretty good bet. I don't think he lied to me. And he said, and surely I am with you. How often? When you do good. Surely I'm with you when you make straight A's. Surely I'm with you when you make good choices in traffic. Surely I'm with you. How often? To the very end of the... Have we reached the end? We may be in the last of days, but this is not over. And he has promised to be with you how often? Are you waiting for God to show up? No. He's waiting for you to show up. This is his earth. This is his kingdom. He's waiting for you to join in his kingdom. He's waiting for you to join in his purposes. He's waiting for you to get with him. 
Very often the problem with the church is we've decided our own direction. We've decided our own agenda. We've got our own program, and we're asking God to come join our party. It doesn't work that way. He is the supreme. He's the ultimate. He is the giver of life and direction. Our expectancy and hope is that he will communicate to us what we should do. And then we get with his program. He showed up preaching a message. The kingdom of God is at hand. One way to translate that is the kingdom of God is breaking through or is breaking in. It speaks of a world that was under the control of a devil. And God himself broke the dominion of that devil and showed up for all who wanted him. Now the question is, not has he shown up, but have you? Oh, church, do you want to be with God? Do you love Jesus? If you think that my exegesis is poor in this area, how about John 14 and verse 15? If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. What's it say? To be with you. Shut it down. Is God a liar? If he says it more than once, if you misunderstood it the first time, maybe you catch it the second time. Jesus said, I would be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Here he said that the counselor would be with you for... Is there such a thing as a God-forsaken place then? They say, oh, there's genocide in Uganda. It's a God-forsaken land. No, it's not. It's a church-forsaken land. There's no such thing as God-forsaken. His kingdom has showed up. It is here. The question is, are you walking in it? Are you in his kingdom? The question is not, is God here? It's, are you with him while he's here? Is that not the most important question of the day? What does it mean to be in the will of God? Some would say, well, it means to believe the Roman road to salvation, and they've neatly printed it so we can all memorize it. I want to tell you that five out of five demons believe that Jesus is Lord and it doesn't do a thing for them. The Bible clearly says that they shudder at his name and know that there is but one God. But it doesn't do a thing for them. Knowing who Jesus is doesn't do anything more for you than knowing who your plumber is. Obeying what he says. Getting with his agenda surrendering your will to his will, that is everything. It's called lordship. These promises were not new. They didn't show up in the ministry of Jesus. In the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy, in the 6th verse, it says this, Be strong and courageous. It's a great phrase in Hebrew. Rak, kazak, amatz. It means with white-knuckled intensity of a man determined to complete his task, you go forward. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you and will never leave you or forsake you. How many of you have felt abandoned? How many of you have felt alone? If you feel abandoned or alone, it's not because God is not with you. It's because you are not with him. See, when we walk in his will, we have fellowship with him. Say, so, well, I'm pretty sure I wasn't sinning, but I was throwing my own little pity party. That is sin. 
When you want to be strong in the Lord, it's found in the joy of the Lord. Joy is a way to express to God confidence that you believe what He says. How many of you believe He will protect you? But if you're biting your fingernails in fear, does that express that belief in your action? How many of you believe that He will provide for you? But if you were scared to death and hoarding food in your basement, does that express your belief that He will provide for you? See, in our actions, we display what we believe. Joy is one of those statements of faith that the whole world can see. When you smile, friends, it might be more impressive than a theological statement written by the finest seminary professor. Because while he can write it, if he can't live that in the midst of difficulties, no one will believe it. Are you hearing me today? Jesus is already with us. We should not think we are waiting for him to show up, but rather he is waiting for us to show up. There are valid times to wait on direction from God, but often he is simply waiting on us. In fact... The scripture declares that he's seeking us out. Maybe we could hang a scarlet cord in our window to make it easy to find. Maybe you could say, look, Lord, my hope is in you. Look, mighty God, at the expectancy that I have. Lord, if you don't see it anywhere else in my house, I want you to see faith. Maybe you could even thank him for your trials because they're simply a chance for you to show your faith. Lately... I've had some false candy-appled Christians, some little dandelions, all pronounce their curses upon me. And not just me, the work that we're doing. Not just the work that we're doing, the people that are doing the work. Do you know what joy it brings me to be able to confidently look at them and say, I love you and I pray that you find the mercy of God? It's like saying you've hit me as hard as you can and I didn't notice. Church, joy is an ultimate expression of defiance in the Holy Ghost. It means I refuse to let you smother what God is doing in me. Can you imagine two heavyweight boxers square off, Michael, and the harder Carl the Truth Williams hits Mike Tyson, he just smiles. Can you imagine what that must be like? You have given your very best shot and it didn't even seem to faze them. Any of you wise men with salt and pepper hair remember the movie Shane? Oh my goodness, there's something about a smile that says, I've won this battle, you just don't know it yet. In John 4, in verse 23, a very important truth exists. It says, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father does what? Come on, say it out loud. What does the Father do? I know that you may have bought into the idea that the Lord created everything in six days, and on the seventh day He took a very long nap. But it's not true. To this very day, the Father is seeking something. What is He seeking? Men who will worship him in spirit and truth. How did they find Rahab, friends? There was something hanging in her window. 
There was hope there. There was expectancy there. It communicated the knowledge. It said, I know I'm under judgment, but I believe that you will have mercy on me. Oh, and it moved the heart of God. Did you know that she made it into the lineage of King David? Did you know that? Did you know that she made it into the lineage of Jesus Christ? She goes down in the annals of the faithful for all time. Why? Because she hung expectant hope in her window. Oh, man, what are you hanging in your window? Friends, what's in your window is probably what you're looking through to see the world. Oh, did you hear me? You have to look through it to see everything else. If you have an expectant hope, it will color the way that you see the whole world. If in your heart you are full of fear and condemnation and shame, it will color the way you see the whole world. There are men that can find nothing good in what our ministry does. I know why. They've got the wrong thing hanging in their window. But there are men that see the very fragrance of life in what we do because they're looking through the lens of Christ. Somebody say amen in the house of God. I kind of feel like I'm preaching this better than y'all are hearing it. Can somebody help me out to Abby? Are you drawing while I'm preaching? Come on, give me an amen in the house of God. Come here, Abby. Come here. Come, come all the way up here. This is my little girl. Isn't she pretty? I love to spend time with her. I just caught her drawing while I was preaching. And you know what? I don't love her any less. I'm not over her with a big stick ready to hit. I love her. You need to remember he is first and foremost your father. You can sit down, princess. He's your father. We need to remember that Jesus Christ has removed the rod of affliction from you in the sense that God is not angry. If you love Jesus, if your life is hidden in Christ, then it's even possible that the King of glory, the immortal, unapproachable, the one who dwells in unapproachable light is happy with you. What a good feeling that God would be happy with you. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are marginally attached to Him. It's not what it says, is it? To strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Is your heart halfway committed to Him? Is it three-quarters of the way committed to Him? Did you make a commitment when you were 13 to Him and that's about the full extent of your commitment ever towards Him? See, He wants to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. So are you halfway in or all the way in? Are you an all-out Christian or a part-time Christian? See, if you're an all-out Christian, if you're a serious, radical, revolutionary for the kingdom of God, you can know that God is breathing strength into you. How many of you have traveled to another country? Raise your hand. Many of you have seen in India, many of you have seen in Africa, many of you have seen in Eastern Europe or seen in Central America or South America or just south of our border. When a Christian has very little, but they have a scarlet cord of hope hanging in their window. God moves in amazing ways. I've seen people get out of wheelchairs. I've seen limbs grow back, bones pop into place, and disease and sickness disappear at the laying on of hands because God Almighty was strengthening those whose hearts were fully committed to Him. 
How many of you were in India when that man that was almost a hundred was dragged in on a mat? Demon-possessed in a, in a village that worshipped other gods. A singular Christian and not a very good one in the village. We were meeting with her because she was doing bad things. But she said, perhaps if I wasn't alone, perhaps if there were just a couple Christians that would pray with me in this place, it would strengthen me and encourage me. You know, in her home, demons were cast out of a man. He couldn't walk, but he stood to his feet, leaped and rejoiced, and all of the little Hindu children began to sing praises about Jesus. And we celebrated in the village there together. Our God will do amazing things for the heart that is fully committed to Him. If your heart is not fully committed, you can change today. You can renew your commitment today. The word ruach is a Hebrew word that means spirit. It shows up in Greek as pneuma or pneumos or in some cases pneumaticos. They all have the same connotation. They mean wind or spirit. The moving of air. Wind is not wind if it's not moving. When you say the Holy Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, you're acknowledging that God is on the move by His very nature. The question is not, is God doing something? The question is, are you doing what God is doing? Come on, church, do you want to be doing what God is doing? Yes. Do you want to get with God's program or are you content with your own? See, we need to search the heart and will of God to find out what He is doing. Some of you seem tired this morning, and it's okay. We get tired sometimes. Even Jesus got tired. Tired as He was from a journey, He sat down by a well, and then do you know what happened? He met a Rahab-like woman, and her whole life changed. God is not affected by your weariness. God is not at all affected by your inabilities. He's not affected by your weaknesses. He is the ultimate. And if in your weakness you can cry out for His strength, He can change everything. Amen. How many of you know who was the first person to frown in the Bible? I mean, the first person to have what the French say is the boudé lip. Would you put Genesis 4-6 on the screen? Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? Oh, that Cain could have got a Holy Ghost facelift. If just right then Cain could have had heaven pull the corners of his mouth in hope and expectancy, maybe we'd have a different story. Cain's frown defined Cain's life. Cain had something hanging in his window, and it colored the way he saw the whole world. How did Cain see the world? Oh, it's full of injustice. Who, who is the, the guilty villain that needs to be removed? It's my righteous brother Abel. See, what you hang in your window will affect the way you see the whole world. When you look around, are you pretty sure people don't like you because of the color of your skin? Are you pretty sure people don't like you because of your socioeconomic status? Are you pretty sure that people don't like you because you're from the American South? Are you pretty sure that you're a victim? Because it will color everything that you do for the rest of your life if that's how you see yourself. 
But if what you see is somebody who's been born again, somebody who's been spirit-filled, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, somebody who is a son of God, given a seat at the table, it'll change the way that you see the world. See, friends, what's at stake here is you have the right to be somebody who is pitiable. You have the right to be somebody who is beat upon and so weak. Or you have the right through belief in Jesus Christ to become a son of the living God. Please don't trade what is miserable in the place of what is eternal. Any fool can be a miserable person. But it takes somebody filled with the Spirit of God to rise above their circumstances and stand on the rock of faith with a hope and expectancy that God is doing something bigger. A smile is the biggest statement of faith that you could make. Think about the powers in the heavenlies and from their perspective. They're watching you. They're looking. Ephesians says that God wanted to display his manifold wisdom. Where does he display it? In you creatures that are made in his image. They're watching Is your life encouraging their continual assaults? Do they feel like they're winning with you? Or have you learned to express a trust and a hope in the living God that says, if you beat me with a baseball bat into a greasy little spot on the ground, that spot is going to say, I'm blessed. Oh, it must be exhausting to be an anvil that wears out hammers if you are the guy holding the hammer. Church, How long has the devil been trying to kill you? He's been a murderer since the beginning. How long has he been lying to you? To borrow a line from a movie, you're still here. Despite his very best efforts, you're still here. Church, we need to grab some Holy Ghost confidence. I'd like you to think about this. People spend all kinds of money to become plastic. They buy toys for their children of the perfect plastic girl. And then they spend their lives trying to stretch and contort their bodies into the perfect plastic person. One of the most common cosmetic surgeries there are is a facelift. And you can do it yourself right now. See, you just got prettier. The pouty look is out in the kingdom. Big puffy lips that somebody might trip on hadn't done a thing to move God's heart. A smile might move the heart of God. You know what it looks like, you crazy maniac charismatics? When you smile with your whole body. This is expressing hope and expectancy. This says, Lord, I surrender. And at the same time says, Lord, I expect to receive. Look, I'm making a giant cup with my whole body. Pour out heaven's blessings on me. Are you hearing me? How many of you would like to smile with your whole body? Lift up your hands in the holy place. Raise your hands to the living God. Say, Almighty God, would you shine on me? Now let's practice something you're never going to do again. What does it look like to frown with your whole body? 
This is like water off a duck's back, friends. It'll shed every blessing of God that could be poured on it. Nothing ever does will be good enough for you. You will find a way to grumble while he splits the Red Sea. He can rain down manna and you'll say, I want quail. He can give you quail till it comes out your nose. But this is never happy, ever. Oh, please don't be a vacuum that sucks the energy out of the room. In the name of Jesus Christ, we need to position our lives in a way that can receive from the living God. Is there a Bible story about a man who stood on a mountain with his hands raised? Oh, my goodness. Turn with me to Exodus 17. It seems that when the cares and the worries of the world are pulling at a Christian, it shows up in the corners of your mouth first. What's wrong, somebody has to ask you. What do you say when, when, when asked, hey, what's wrong? Come on, what's the, what's the response nine times out of ten? Oh, nothing. So you add to your sin a lie on top of the sin. Oh, nothing. And then, of course, when somebody ten minutes later says, hey, hey, what's, uh, what's wrong, you know? Oh, nothing. Now we're practicing what's called data denial. Despite all evidence to the contrary, I'm not admitting to anything being wrong. But I obviously want you to know something's wrong, which is why I'm walking around like this. You talk about an unproductive exercise. So, well, what do we do? Us and Bob Marley, we just be happy? Sing songs about red wine? How does it work? It turns out that the Holy Spirit inside of you is called the anointing of the oil of joy. It turns out that when the victor is inside of you, you don't walk around like a victim. It turns out that when you get in God's presence, it doesn't matter where you stand in circumstance. You're happy. Come on, church. You ever been so down, so defeated, and the presence of the Lord pull you out of it? I was whining, crying in my raisin brand, driving down the road. Oh, Lord, my life is so hard. I've traveled enough to know that is simply not true. Is there anybody right now that is residing outside of the United States, but you happen to be here? Okay. So, oh, one of you, a German. God bless Germans, they're smart. Meine Gute. So... I'm, I'm afraid Germany fits in the same category, sorry. What happens then, by virtue of living where you live, your life is not anywhere near as hard as a good 80% of the world's population. Do you have clean drinking water available to you? Do you have basic shelter above your head? Is it possible to eat a meal somewhere in this city today? Come on, church. You know what we are? Spoiled. Spoiled. That's not a nice word, is it? Spoiled's another word for rotten. Rotten's another word for decaying and dying. Is that how God called us? Is that what he wants hanging in your window? We ought to be the happiest people on the planet. Are you in Exodus 17? Are you all mad at me yet? It's okay. There's still time. I might get you. There's still time. I could upset all of you. 
Life's so much easier to go through with a smile. Dee Dee is going through chemotherapy, but she's smiling. That smile says, I'm not defeated. Give your best. Give your best because my life stands on the glories of Christ. Exodus 17 and verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. <laughs> not a bad place to leave. If you live in the desert of sin, get out of there, man. Makes you wonder, how did that particular name come about? Then you have to wonder about Mount Hor and so many other places. Don't let your mind wander. Let's just leave. Let's just leave. Let's just leave. If you live in the desert of sin, leave. Get out. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. Has the Lord commanded your movements? Is your life a representation of what God has commanded? Are you here because God commanded it? Do you work where you work because God commanded it? Do you live where you live because God commanded it? Or did you make all of those choices and then say, Lord, I'd like you to bless it? Because the difference between those two statements is he is your Lord or is your pocket genie? See, if he's your genie, you can rub his belly and tell him what you want him to do. But if he's your Lord, then you ask his permission, and he sends you where he wants you to go. When he's your Lord, friends, it makes happy saints. Because if he sent you somewhere and it's difficult, you know he's still with you. If he sent you somewhere and you're oppressed on every side, you know that he is fighting the battle for you. But, oh, I pity the soul that has chosen their own path. The Proverbs teach us that there is a way that seems right to, the man, to a man, but where does it end? In death and destruction. What's at stake? Death and destruction. They camped at Rephidim. Rephidim is an interesting city. Rephidim means refreshment, rest. You live in Rephidim? Refreshment, rest. When we're in Matamoros, Mexico, sometimes roofing on tin roofs. Anybody burned from the beach the other day? I saw somebody today that was red. John's an Asian and he was red. Where are you at? Uh, John's in the back with the kids. He's an Asian and his skin's red this morning. That's hard to do. We get sunburn on those roofs. And you're driving down the road, and I don't speak much Spanish, but I saw a sign, and it said, Aqua Fresca. And my mouth started to water. So I want to go there. Have you ever been in a place you just, man, what I need is I just need some refreshment, you know? That place is the presence of God. If you try to find it anywhere else, the water will turn your stomach as fast as that aqua fresca sent me to a bad place. <laughs> but there was no water for the people to drink. They were at a place of refreshment. But there was no water for them to drink. Are you seeking refreshment in Hollywood? Are you seeking refreshment <clears throat> in food? If you slap your belly and it takes more than 30 seconds to stop jiggling, you might be as guilty as me. Are you seeking refreshment 
everywhere other than the presence of God. See, they were at Rephidim, and where they needed to be was in the presence of God. So in all of the refreshment, there was no water. So what did they do? They began to grumble. They quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Are you hearing me, saints? When you're not happy, what are you doing? You're testing the Lord's patience. Imagine what you're doing when your arms are crossed and your lip is sticking out and you're, woe is me. You're saying, Jesus, your blood was not good enough. Your resurrection was not good enough. You dying that bloody death for me, not good enough. You pouring out your spirit from on high into me again, not good enough. Is that not the height of insolence? It doesn't feel like it in the moment. We feel perfectly justified in the things we would like to do. Let me ask you, when you get in the presence of God, does he beat you with a stick? No, his spirit says you're better than this. Stop it. That's what his spirit says. You are better than this. Stop it. Guys, what's hanging in our window will color the way that we see the whole world. And if you have no hope, how will they see hope in you? If you find the Christian life undesirable, why would you expect them to find it desirable? If you find the Christian life unfulfilling, how can you tell them, come to the almighty, all-sufficient, all-powerful God that I know? When they look, do they describe the body of Christ as miserable or as glorious? Verse 4, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I supposed to do with these people? Come on, say these people. people. Don't let that be you people. What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. They want to kill Moses. Why? They're looking through their own hurt, their own problem, their own selfishness. And they've decided Moses is the problem. What did Moses do? He showed up to help them when they were slaves. He's a man who had met with God, who had been touched by the fire of God, and he showed up to say, you don't have to be a slave. You can follow the Lord, but now he's the problem. Why? Some of the elders have been bombarded with harassed souls, verbal rantings. I love him, but God bless him. He sees the entire world as the problem, and he's never considered changing himself. And so it goes with most. They dream of a better world, but never start with a better self. The only way to please God is to trust him enough to act like what he says is true. Despite all evidence to the contrary, you choose to believe that God's word is true. Verse 5, The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Are you here, leaders? Anybody in the house of God wants to lead? You've got to walk on ahead of the people. You've got to put yourself out front and say, Look what's hanging in my window. I trust the living God. Look at this. I expect Him to solve our problems because He loves us. You can't get in all the funk of the people. Oh, we love democracy in this country. If it was a democracy, would they have ever come out of Egypt? The world's changed by a remnant who have heard from God. And they inspire a nation to follow them. 
Are you hearing me? Yes. You get to decide whether you want to be what's called common or vulgar or whether you want to be something that is inspired and different, something that's touched of heaven. Leaders create movement. Are you with me? Say that. Leaders create movement. movement. What's movement create? Friction. That's just how it works. It's okay. I can handle the heat in the name of Jesus because it means we're moving the right direction. I don't mind when people criticize, and you shouldn't either. It shouldn't ruin your day. It ought to say you're on the right track. Even the demons are getting stirred up. If you're not opposed, you must not be very dangerous. Moses walked on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Isn't it nice when a few will go with you? And take in your hand the staff of God with which you struck the Nile and go. Sometimes all you have is the testimony of a changed life and the very few righteous that will go with you. You go on ahead of the people. You set an example. You you set a standard. Does anybody in this place have a lost relative? Anybody in this place have somebody that you hope will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? You got to walk on ahead of them. You got to carry the standard of God ahead of them. You can't sit there and, and grumble in all of their grumblings and expect them to find salvation in that. It won't happen. You have to go on ahead. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Have you ever heard that the Older Testament is, is all judgment and no grace, but the New Testament is a dispensation of grace? What a ridiculous lie from the pit of hell. What did these people deserve? They didn't deserve for Moses to strike a rock and God bring water out of it. They deserved to have that rock dropped on their heads. God didn't give you what you deserved. He's given you what you needed. But we want to turn and give people what they deserve. If I gave my little dachshund what he deserved, he'd be instant death. I brought him to church today. I'm still hoping he gets saved. And, uh, and when we got out of the truck, you know the first thing he did to my truck? He peed on the tires. Just his little way of letting me know it's his truck. There's not a day that goes by that in my flesh I don't want to kick him across the parking lot. And yet it's this wonderful contradiction. I also love him. Because if I say, hey, you want to go? He's excited to go wherever I go. His whole body wiggles. He jumps up and down with excitement. He'll run in circles. He runs to the door to beat me there waiting to get to go. What if we could just have the faith my weenie dog has? What if we just were that excited about doing God's will? What if we just wiggled with excitement for doing whatever God said to do? So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? At the heart of the issue, it wasn't about water or no water. It wasn't even about joy or no joy. Those things were all symptoms of one problem. They didn't really believe the Lord was with them. You know what your joy says to the whole world? The Lord's with me. You know what your lack of joy says to the whole world? I feel like the Lord's abandoned me. But it's not him who abandoned you. It's you who abandoned him. Every time you walk out in self-pity, every time that you are 
just disgusted with life and discouraged and beat down. We're walking out on God's plans for our life. We're putting it on hold. We're pressing the pause button and saying, we need a a little me break. Friends, they're going to hell. They're going to hell right now all around us. We don't have time for me time. You're supposed to be the shining light of salvation to the world. So, well, pastor, this is not very encouraging. I think you're talking about me. Isn't it good to get over yourself? Isn't it good to realize that your life is so much bigger than just you? Most of the time when you're discouraged, it's because you feel like your life is not big enough. It's not reaching out far enough. It's not productive enough. But the truth is, the only time that is true is when you're wallowing in your self-pity. All the rest of the time, you're on display for the whole world to see. How important was the scarlet cord in Rahab's window? Their lack of joy and grumbling showed they had no faith. The enemy is always watching. There was this old lady in a church one time, at least as the pastors tell the story, and they say she was incapable of saying anything bad about anyone. Say, well, you know, what about that politician? And they say, oh, well, at least he's trying to do something good. Say, well, what about the devil, ma'am? Can you say anything bad about the devil? He's always busy. (laughs) He is always busy. He's looking for an opportune time. When we grumble and we wallow in self-pity, he finds it. Look at verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. You need to appreciate what this would say to the original speaker for a second. The Amalekites are the descendants of Esau. Esau is known internationally as a carnal person. Amalekites, that word literally means warlike valley dweller. They show up when you're between the mountaintops of glory. See, while you're on the mountaintop praising God in the height of your spiritual fervor is not when the Amalekite shows up. The Amalekite shows up when you're like, I'm just going to rest for a while, a.k.a. sit in my depression. And he shows up for one purpose. He wants to kill you. He's not there to make friends. He's not there to help you to get you to join his book club. He's there to kill you. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He attacks the people of God when you're resting when you should be working. Are you hearing me? Say, what what is the work to believe on the sun? What is the work to shine his light? What is the work to be where he says, doing what he says? You don't find your work significant? Maybe you need to get up on a mountaintop so you can see. You certainly won't see the significance of your life while you're in the valley. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, let's pick it up. Come on, let's go to a higher place. Let's take a higher road. Let's get a higher ground. Let's get a higher perspective. I'm done with valley dwelling. How funny they call it Silicon Valley. People that are so unhappy with their lives, they are injecting substances into their body to change them. Verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, how about that? This is Exodus 17, 17 chapters into the second book of the Bible, and it's our first appearance of the word Joshua. Joshua could be translated as salvation. 
It could be further translated, particularly as the name Hoshea, as Yahweh's salvation. And it shows up here for the first time. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites tomorrow. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Do you hear me? Why did Jesus come? He came to fight with the Amalekites. He came to do war with those who are trying to crush and oppress his people. How does he, how does he do it? It starts by choosing some men to go to battle. If the Lord was looking to choose soldiers out of this group, how does the mailman know whether to pick up your mail or to drop off mail? Anybody? When that mailbox gets its hands up, it means it's got something to give as well as to receive. When that flag is pointing at the ground, it has surrendered in defeat. It's all a one-way street. Dump into me, but I've got nothing. I'm here to consume. How could the Lord choose you? Well, you need to answer the question first. If the Lord gives me something, what will I do with it? If the Lord gives me something, what is it for? If the Lord pours joy into me, strength into me, if the Lord gave me a dollar, is that dollar for me? You need to answer the question first. You want him to choose you. You have to decide that whatever he does for you is ultimately about doing something for the Lord. This is not I give to get. This is the only reason I have is to give. It's a completely different mindset. He chose men to go out and do battle. How many of you want there to be men who are doing battle with the enemy? How many of you want there to be men doing battle with the enemy? The problem with an elected democracy, a representative republic, is you're used to electing others to go fight your battles. But I say the Spirit of God is choosing you. I say it's not enough to call your pastor, not enough to call the elder in the church. You have to learn to rise up in your faith and say, I will hang an expectant hope from my neck. Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites tomorrow. I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Hold up your Bible, church. I'm going to stand on the hill with the righteous requirements of God in my hands. I'm going to stand up for the whole world can see me, and this is my standard for life. Every victory I've ever had came through this. Everything I've ever held worth having came through this. You stand on a mountain for the whole world to see what the source of victory is. That's not hiding in your bedroom, reading the latest novel, feeling sorry about your life. This brother goes up on a mountaintop. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Moses, Aaron, and Hur. Not H-E-R, H-U-R. Everybody knows who Moses is. He's the great prophet, right? Everybody knows who Joshua is. He's the successor to Moses. In this scripture, he's a warrior. Most people know who Aaron is. He's, he's the priest, the head of the Levitical order. But who is Hur? 
Josephus in the Antiquities of Israel says her is Miriam's husband. It's Moses' sister, so her would be Moses' brother-in-law. Her was from the tribe of Judah. He was the grandfather of Bezalel, the man who built most of the furnishings in the temple. Her was a leader like Aaron who was left in charge at times. Nelson's Bible Dictionary says her means nobility. I want you to notice that each man has their place. Moses is holding up the standard of God. He has a priest on one side. He has nobility on the other side. And every man has their calling. One is fighting in the valley. One is holding up the standard. And two are supporting the man holding up the standard. What if Hurth saw his task as insignificant? What if Aaron decided, I think I'd rather be in the valley fighting today? What if Joshua felt left all alone in the valley and he doesn't get to spend time on the mountaintop? Church, you need to learn to embrace your function. You need to see your place in the body of Christ and not desire someone else's. Embrace yours. Selfish ambition is the root of all evil. It's evil cousin. It's not that you desire to be great. You just don't think what you do is great. If you're doing what God has told you to do, it's great. If you're obedient to the Lord, it's great. It's divine. If you're fulfilling His purpose for you, it's divine. It's amazing. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Whenever Moses held up his hands, when his whole body was smiling to the heavens, it was victory. When his hands dropped, defeatist, victim, then it was true. Friends, what you're looking through will color the way you see the world. It just will. It does. You teach somebody that they're small, poor, and insignificant, and they will act poor, small, and insignificant. You teach somebody that they have the power to move the heavens, that God Almighty loves them enough to have invested His substance inside of them, and they will act like sons of God. What's at stake? Everything is reflected in our attitudes. When Moses' hands grew tired, somebody say, grew tired. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands. The priest whose name means mountain of strength was on one side. And the Judite, a man descendant from the tribe of praise, whose very name means noble, was on the other side. How noble is it to praise when you're tired? Oh, it's like a mountain of strength. We need to learn. We need to learn from these biblical pictures. The man stood on a mountain. Does anybody in their right mind think that's a good battle strategy? You know what? We're going to have a battle in court. So what I want you all to do is, I don't know, go find a mountain somewhere and pray. Only a Christian would ever think that's a good plan. 
You know what? The army that is vast and superior is coming to destroy us all. I know what we'll do. We'll take our wives, children, and little ones, and we'll stand in the presence of God, and he'll surely deliver them into our hands. Only a Christian would think something like that is a good idea. But how good of an idea was it? The warlike valley dweller showed up. Every time Moses began to sag, what did he have? He had a friend. Oh, church, Ecclesiastes teaches us two are better than one. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. If you're fortunate enough to have a spouse, you have a gift from God. Listen to your spouse. You hear me? I know, ladies. I know what it's like. Every time you look at a billboard, it says you're not good enough. Every time you see a magazine with some airbrush, silicone, alien-like freak on it, it says you're not good enough. When your husband looks at you and says, I find you beautiful, have the faith in the living God to believe him. The way that you look at the world is often determined by the joy, hope, and expectancy you have or don't have. And if you see yourself as inadequate, no one will be able to make you feel adequate. You know, people who have surgeries end up having more than one. Turns out that an A wasn't big enough, a B wasn't big enough, a C wasn't big enough. It begins to take on proportions of circus. It does. They call it enhanced. In what world is it an enhancement to look like bees have attacked your body? And the world has told us this is desirable. Men, when your wife looks at you and says, if you don't feel a success in anybody else's eyes, you are the revered king of this castle and I love you. Have the faith in the living God to believe her. Because if you see yourself as weak and impotent, insignificant, then how are you going to deal with the world? The reason Jesus Christ appeared was to destroy the enemy's work. The way that the enemy's work is destroyed is when men hold up the standard of God and others support that standard and the chosen men go and fight. Everybody has their place. Say, I have a place. Don't despise your place. You know what? I love praise and worship. I think I love it more than Matthew does. The thing is, I can't do it. And I don't despise that at all. It shows I have a need for my brother. And he has a need for me. We each have our function. Michael Hutchinson might be the only human being I've ever met that I think can outwork me. I didn't know how to feel about that at first. I've come to admire it. We want all God's people to surpass us. We do. We all have a place. Don't despise yours. Don't feel the need to compare yourself with someone else. In your mind, if you had to name prominent biblical characters, would her ever have been mentioned? But it was as essential as Aaron is, whether he was well-known or not. If I didn't tell you what Josephus said about him, you wouldn't know anything about him other than at one time... 
He had his face in Moses' armpit. Not very pretty job description, is it? But it's essential. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. How did Joshua overcome? He overcame as each part of the body of Christ did its part. What was the symbol of victory, saints? Moses' whole body was smiling. The whole thing. And when he couldn't, somebody helped him by propping him up. Come on, if your neighbor is not smiling right now, help him smile. Come on, church. Look, y'all got prettier. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. He wants us to remember where victory comes from. Say amen. amen. How many of you like comedies? You know, these days they squeeze every foul thing into it, but it is not an ungodly desire to like to laugh. If you ever had to picture what it is to be a warrior in the body of Christ, the reason that people are drawn to the writings of C.S. Lewis the reason people like Tolkien's stories, the Lord of the Rings series, the reason people like some of those things is because in the middle of warfare they're laughing and they're joking about, uh, I've killed more than you have and that one doesn't count. And, and all of, because the warriors in the body of Christ face insurmountable odds with a confident smile. And this says victory in a way that no doctrinal statement of faith ever could. And you know what else it does? It inspires others to follow. You hear me? It inspires people not because it's their duty. It becomes their passion. They want to be like those men that could not be overcome because of the power of the living God. Verse 15. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. Why do people build banners? In some churches it's kind of a neat thing, in others it's kind of a weird thing. I was in one where when the banner came out, the pastor liked everybody to bow, and one of my buddies leaned over to me and said, Hail, banner full of grace. And uh, ever since then I couldn't think about it quite like the rest of the church did. But what you're trying to do with a banner is lift up some attribute of the Lord so that everybody can see, oh, look how good the Lord is. The Lord is my banner. It's written on your face. Or it's not written on your face. It's up to you. It is. I was so pained when I became a pastor to find out people don't like to rent buildings to churches. I was so pained to find out wait staff don't like Sunday afternoon. I was so pained to find out what a bad reputation the body of Christ has. And I want to change that. Because King Jesus is nothing like that is not his banner. Do you hear me? If you do a word study of all 218 times you find joy in the Bible, it indicates victory or it indicates defeat. I challenge you, go look in Galatians. What happened to all your joy? It is the sign that a Christian is defeated. 
But you know, sometimes turning the bottle around is as simple as saying, Stand up, Judah. Stand up, Abby. Were you playing again? Good Lord. Mercy, Daddy. Hold my hand up. Sometimes victory is as simple as standing with the right brothers and changing your attitude. Do you hear me? This is never going to please God. This can receive from God and we'll learn. Is that a simple message? I know sometimes I preach all kind of things. This one you ought to be able to remember forever. Come on, give me a statement of faith, church. Give me a statement of faith, church. Let me see some teeth. Come on, give me a statement of faith, church. Now when you learn to add to that smile, a statement that says, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Somebody might believe you. Somebody might want what you have. You know, I'm convinced you don't have to stand and scream at the world. They're going to hell. They probably already know, which is why we're seeking out drugs and sex and entertainment. We're trying to satisfy ourselves at refidium instead of fighting the actual battle that would bring victory. But if what we could do was say, I have an expected hope that we don't have to fall under judgment, we can get on the right team, we can head the right direction, we can go the right way, and it's as simple as right now, stretching up to the heavens and saying, Lord, I don't have it and I need it. Oh, that's a whole different story, isn't it? Sometimes the distance between heaven and hell is as short as the corners of your mouth. Sometimes the 10 or 12 inches between, in Al's case, 37 inches between his heart and his head, is the distance between heaven and hell. I want to tell you something. I'm not just interested in everybody pretending to be happy. This is not a suck it up message that just says fake it. This says if you stand in the presence of God, that's where joy and strength come from. And if you don't have it, you know where to get it. Don't settle for anything less than that. If you are struggling and someone says, hey man, what's, what's, what's wrong? Stop lying. Tell them. I feel like a low-down rat. Yesterday, I yelled at my wife or kicked my dog or whatever it is that you did. That's the beginning of repentance. It starts with confession. That way, they can look at you and say, He instructs sinners in His way. Psalms 25 says so. Stop sinning and let's turn to the Lord and He'll give you mercy now. Let's do it together now. That's just like Aaron and her holding up your hand. And then when you get up from your knees, believe that He's forgiven you and go on and act like it. Amen? Could you all stand to your feet?